Hi, this is Dino Tripodis, and you're listening to Whiskey Business, a podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. I am in Florida for a lot of reasons. No need to go into all of them. I'm just here and not there. But on Wednesday, January the 16th, it was the 100th anniversary of Prohibition being passed. Yeah, passed. That stupid law went to effect and stayed in effect for, well, far too long, as far as we're all concerned. No, did it affect us? Uh-uh. But it was an important time in history when people went without whiskey and had to go through devious means to get it. So I thought that we would uh, hit the archives, since I'm gone this week, and revisit our very first podcast with Alex Hasty from Ohio v. The World, and find out how it was Ohio's fault that Prohibition started. Yeah, way to go, Buckeye State. Anyway, enjoy this archive and check them all out at whiskeybusinessshow.com, and we'll see you with a new whiskey business real soon. Till the next bottle. Cheers. Have you ever been in a Twilight Zone moment or imagined yourself in one? I have. Picture a man in a world without booze. No alcohol libation to drown his sorrows in or to celebrate the occasional joys in his life. Going to a bar with the strongest spirit present is one of courage used in a feeble attempt to soothe the pains or pleasures of a tired soul. Don't know such a place? Neither did Dino Tripodis, who's just in time for last call in the Twilight Zone. All right. Welcome to Whiskey Business, a podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. I'm Dino Tripodis, and tonight we are talking about a Twilight Zone period in our country. Prohibition. Yep. And the guest bottle is Templeton's Rye, the good stuff made because of Prohibition. We'll talk a little bit more about the whiskey in just a bit, but also to introduce our guest, Alex Hasty, liquor attorney and uh, uh, an Ohio expert and an expert in that period of time in our country called Prohibition. Welcome, man. Nice to have you. You know what's up? Good to be here. Nice to have you here. Alex is a uh, liquor attorney. He's got a podcast of his own that's getting ready to launch soon called Ohio versus the World. And uh, you seem like the best person to pick because, uh, well, how did you even get interested in, in Prohibition? I mean, because you seem to know everything about it. Well, it's I'm a liquor attorney, which means, uh, you know, I represent bars, restaurants, breweries, wineries, distilleries, anything with a liquor license. Um, so we help people sometimes even bring, you know, drinks to market, whether it's a beer or, or a whiskey. And so all these laws, these complicated liquor laws we have in the state are all because of prohibition. They're all a result of the repeal of prohibition in 1933. Which is why I picked the Templeton Rye. And it's because, good. It's good uh, stuff. The Templeton Rye was originally made in Templeton, Iowa during the Prohibition era, 1920, as a matter of fact, it was a way for farmers in Carroll County 
Iowa to uh, supplement their income. And they called it the good stuff. It's real good. Well, it's kind of good. This isn't as good as it should be. They also call this now Templeton Lie um, because uh, they now are using a recipe that's shared with other brands. So there's other stuff in here. It's not as it's 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 not the good stuff no more. It's the okay stuff or well, the pretty thank, good stuff. Thanks for breaking out the the best bottle you got for well, me. I, really I wanted something it. that that was uh you know relates to the period of time we're talking about because this was very popular when it was made. It was popular. Uh, in uh, Chicago, Omaha, and Kansas City, and is rumored to have been Al Capone, speaking of Prohibition, Al Capone's favorite. Well, Chicago was a great Prohibition town. It's one of the two or three three best ones. And when he was in Alcatraz, supposedly this was smuggled to him uh, whenever possible. I'm sure among other things. Among other things as well. So that's why we went with the Templeton Rye. Prohibition started when? Uh, 1920, January 1920. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, I, my law firm, Hasty Legal in, in Grandview, we we are a product of of all those laws that came out of 1920 and 1933. So, there's this funny point in American history of 1919 to 1920. The law gets passed, and there's a one year grace period there, where alcohol is still legal, but all these breweries and wineries and everything shutting down. And people are just grabbing up as much alcohol as they can. I love that that year, the grace period, as I call it. Um, you know, Mary Pickford, who's a, a famous famous actress in those days, her mom was her manager, and uh, she actually bought an entire liquor store in Beverly Hills and just put it in her basement the month before uh, prohibition, prohibition hit the nineteen twenty. So at once, once prohibition hit, if you if you had gathered up all that whiskey and kept it in your home, it was okay. You, you, the law. It's 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 kind of a misconception about about the Volstead Act, which is the name of the law um, that the Eighteenth Amendment is kind of based on. The Volstead Act didn't make it illegal to drink, so you could drink alcohol. Uh, it was about the transportation, production, sale of alcohol. So when you see those old movies and the prohibition agents raid the you know the saloon or the speakeasy mm-hmm. and everyone's running for the exits and run, diving under tables, I don't think that was really happening. I think you were allowed to drink, you know, you weren't in trouble as a patron. Um, it would have been the proprietors that would have been in trouble and would have been shut down. Oh, well, yeah, but, you know, when the cops come in any place, what's, the, what's your first reaction? <laughs> <I've> run, <laughs> you go for the door. <laughs> I've run from a few cops in, in, in my younger, under 21 days. I don't days. care what you're doing. The cops are coming. Jeez, it's the cops. Let's go. You know, we're not, you're not sitting around waiting to see what might happen and what might develop. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there were also because uh, I remember, and I, maybe Greg, do you remember that we had one of the whiskeys here recently? Was actually there were certain whiskeys that were actually allowed for medicinal purposes. Yeah, I mean, this was a, a giant loophole. Um, you see, guys like George Remus. I don't know if you're familiar right. with George Remus from Cincinnati. Um, there was a, a large loophole, basically, where doctors and pharmacists could you could get whiskey through those uh, you know through your doctor. You get a prescription. For a liter of, of whiskey, you can go back every ten days. You pay three dollars, and you get a liter every ten days from your from your pharmacist. It was Old uh, Forester. Old Forester. When we had it. the uh, a fitness expert on. Oh, I was I was listening <laughs> to that one earlier today. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's right. Because I picked. I remember I picked a, yeah. a whiskey that was medicinal. That was healthy. <laughs> because that was healthy. That was my that was my rationale on that point. Man, I'll you stretch know, anything in order to get the whiskey in. So I'm, I mean, it was brand whiskeys, and, yeah. and and it would say you know Jim Beam, and then it would say for medicinal purposes only. 
Um, and that's a, really a way that most common Americans got around it. Obviously, you could make some for your own home. You could make your own wine. Um, you'd also get it through the church. So Catholic you know, really? priests could get, you know, because they still had to have their services. But suddenly, instead of getting, you know, 50 gallons of wine a year, you know, your parish is getting 500 gallons of wine a year. And they're selling it out the back door. So it covered wine, too. I mean, it covered every type of alcohol, wine, beer. Anything, it was called intoxicating beverages. So anything that was considered an intoxicating beverage would have been uh, under prohibition law, under the Volstead Act. In a long time. How many years? 13? Uh, 1920 to 1933. So it's really FDR comes in. But it wasn't FDR that gets a lot of credit for it, but it happens early in his administration. The country was just over it. Um, you have You have the... The Depression, people don't have jobs. I mean, alcohol is the fifth largest industry in the country in 1920 when it goes to Prohibition, when, it, when you talk about shipping and bottling and all those jobs involved in it. And we've, we needed that revenue. People needed jobs, and a great way to, to do that was to bring back alcohol. Let's ask that, that question. Why? Why did it happen? Why, why all of a sudden was demon rum actually demon rum and and everything else associated with alcohol bad why did prohibition even happen well then my episode uh, ohio v the world you know my podcast that's coming out uh, next week we talk about you know how the hell did this happen you know it's a freedom we're a freedom loving country we think of ourselves like that um and we prohibit alcohol i mean the through a constitutional amendment which you know the constitution banned two things in as of 1920 you couldn't own slaves and you could not buy a drink of alcohol. Um, the reasons it happened are too long to get into, but a lot of them involve, you know, the state of Ohio. I blame Ohio, our, our home state here, uh, and Columbus specifically for, for prohibition. They played a major role. Um, but the things that I would say caused it, um, as much as women's rights, suffrage was always a part of, uh, always a part of the prohibition movement. Women in vast majorities were for it. Um, also, the political pressures by people like the Anti-Saloon League in Westerville, Ohio, uh, run by Wayne Wheeler, um, they were able to basically get you in and out of office. The, you know, every election, it did, they didn't care if you were a Republican or a Democrat. There's 45% of the people on one side, 45% of the other. They were able to use their vast money and their, uh, you know, their literature and all the stuff that they printed out of Westerville to turn that 10% of the vote. Westerville, which was dry forever until not... That long ago. The dry capital of the world. Yeah, it's yeah. the home of the Anti-Saloon League. So um, there's a museum. We do our interview, actually, uh, our Ohio versus Booze episode is at the Anti-Saloon League Museum in Westerville. Um, and it was dry basically until about 2005. Um, and it was dry before Prohibition. And it was dry. There's about a one-year period there after Prohibition is lifted from 33 to 34, where Westerville was briefly wet. But yeah, it is the dry capital of the world, about 12 miles northeast of, of Columbus. So it, it it had its infancy, its start in, in little old Westerville here yeah, in Ohio. I mean, I mean, but what, I mean, what was going on in 1920 or leading up to 1920 that was so bad that they said alcohol's got to go? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story, an Ohio story, um, of where I think Prohibition really starts. It's Christmas Eve, 1873. Um, and there's a woman named Eliza Thompson. They called her Mother Thompson. She's the daughter of a former Ohio governor. And her and her band of, of uh, temperance ladies, they march out of the church, out of Christmas Mass. I guess it wouldn't have been Mass. It was a Presbyterian church. But they march out of there, and they go to the saloon, and they basically have a pray-in. They start praying for everybody. They're kneeling in front of the saloon. 
Uh, this all happens in Hillsboro, Ohio, which is kind of between Columbus and Cincinnati. Um, and basically, the saloon owner can't operate. So the next day, they go to another saloon. And within two weeks, they had closed eight of the 13 liquor establishments, including some of the pharmacies in Hillsboro. Then they move on to Washington Courthouse, which is a little closer to Columbus and other towns in, in this kind of central Ohio area. Um, and I really I blame Mother Thompson and her, her band of uh, of temperance ladies. And, and they start they show that you can put pressure on people to and they will close their businesses or they'll at least close for a little bit. They show the prohibitions possible. But an entire country? Well, that that kind of takes a little more time. So I understand. I, I guess I, I know you said it's a it's a it's a complicated and lengthy explanation. But but you're talking about something that was part of the the culture and fabric of of America. Booze has always been in place, and then to take something and use as you said earlier, the fifth largest uh, industry industry. Yeah. At that point, well, I, I so was, at, at, and you're talking about during the depression, when why would you take away one of the fifth largest producing elements of our country at, at, in in the depression? Well, it, it comes back during the depression. It's actually a, a very solid economic time after World War One when prohibition goes into effect in 1920. But to understand, I think. Why people would even consider? We'd never consider this today. It's crazy. It would be. It's a twilight zone moment, like you said. Yeah. So, I mean, you got to understand how people drank back in the day. And in in 1830, okay, Americans, anyone over the age of 15, it was said that they drank 17 and a half gallons of liquor a year, okay, which is about 90 fifths. So about two fifths a week for every person. That am doesn't. I, am, mean, I, am I supposed to be uh, impressed you, or or for, for every non Dino <laughs> Tripodis, That is a lot to drink. <laughs> But the thing Over about 15. that stat, that 17 and a half gallon stat, is that includes Americans who didn't drink. Let's say 40% of the population didn't drink. So now we're talking about people really drinking probably closer to 30 gallons a year. Um, and people didn't drink beer in the early 1800s. That's more of something that happens in, after the Civil War when a lot of German immigrants and Irish immigrants uh, come to America. It wasn't so much of a beer country. You had water that was very, uh, I would just say, non-potable at this time. We didn't have water filtration, so people literally drank, uh, you know, whiskey and 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 uh, and gin for, uh, I guess, for you know, to to quench their thirst in, in more ways than one. You couldn't just drink water; there was no tap water. You drink it out of the well, and you never know what was going to happen with that. So people drank a lot more. Uh, people drank a lot of liquor, not as much beer, and you know, the saloons ran the towns, and people basically rebelled against that. They rebelled against the idea of of a drunken nation. Um, obviously, religion is, is a much larger part of the country at that time. Um, but I would never say, even when it's passed in 1920, um, I would never say that the majority of Americans supported prohibition. That's, that's a false concept. That the way they did it was through people like the Anti-Saloon League, who were able to vote in and vote out members of Congress, and they operated in all 50 states and members of state legislatures, who voted wet. If you voted wet... The anti saloon league would turn their uh, turn their cannons on you, and they get you out of office. Wow. So the way it passes is not uh, it's not a national referendum. You know, referendum. It's it's even actually vetoed by President Wilson a couple of times. The way it passes is that the amendment passes in thirty six of the forty eight states. 
to pass a constitutional amendment over a presidential veto, you need 75% of the states to vote in favor of it. Right. And they get the 36th state um, in, in 1919. But from a cultural standpoint, you're saying that uh, in the 1800s, 1830s, and leading up to the time we act, uh, you're saying that 60% of America was just soused Absolutely. And, and half in the bag all the time. And that's what they kind of focused on. I mean, even up until 1840, the U.S. Army would give every member of the Army four ounces of liquor a day. General Washington started that uh, before he was president. It was as a reward for all their hard work. Uh, And once again, I don't, where's the problem? Sign me up. (laughs) Um, So that just shows you how ingrained in the culture it was. And like I said, the water quality being terrible um, didn't help people, but people really did get bombed uh, in the 1800s. And it leads to a kind of counterculture movement to uh, to ban alcohol. They saw it as the only way to to protect, you know, women's rights. There's surely more domestic violence back then. Women had no voting rights, um, and so women really latch onto this idea of prohibition um, as an idea that you know that kind of couples with women's suffrage, which are both passed in the same year. Okay, so but. As we know, you take something from America that they love, they're going to find a way to get it. Oh, yeah. And, and, and we did, which, you know, led to crime and, and ingenuity, if you will. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, that was obviously now becomes an opportunity for for people to uh, make money illegally and give America what they want. I mean, it didn't stop people from drinking, obviously. It actually you know, seems to have increased how much people drank. And that's just kind of the American or really human nature. Yeah, you, you take tell me, something away, I want it. Yeah, so you got to think about, let's look at the federal government. Okay, they in 1920, they decide to pass the Volstead Act, which leads to the 18th Amendment, and now liquor's gone dry. There's still liquor everywhere, okay? There's, it's still in warehouses and bonded warehouses everywhere. It's still being passed through the churches and still being passed through, you know, the pharmacies like we talked about. But it's also being passed through by criminal elements Mm -hmm. because people didn't stop drinking, especially in the big cities. New York City at no point stopped drinking during Prohibition. It wasn't like they stopped for a couple of years and and then they got back on it. New Orleans. Imagine a New Orleans without alcohol. It didn't exist. I'd rather not. Yeah. I mean, New Orleans was (laughs) New Orleans, Chicago. Those were kind of my three big uh, my three big cities for, for, you know, for the Prohibition time. But you got to look at what the government's up against. They're up against you know, 50, so I've been 40, yeah, 50 states or 49, 48 states, whatever it is. Arizona's the 48th state. So 48 states where no one can drink and they have about 3,000 prohibition agents. So Covering 48 states? Covering 48 states. So the local police never asked for this law. And a lot of times they would, you know, it's a lot easier to pay off the local police. They don't want this trouble. A lot of these police officers, they drink at home. They're at the saloons right next to the, you know, the businessman or the, or the uh, you know, the dancer, the flapper. So... The local police did not enforce this law because the government did not give them any resources to enforce it. So they did not feel that it was their job to enforce what was basically a federal law. So you have these prohibition agents from Washington fanning out across the country, and you have booze coming in from all over the Caribbean, obviously, you know, the rum runners down there. I'll tell you who was was huge was Canada. Canada used to bring in so much alcohol uh, into Boston, into Michigan, uh, you know, this, this kind of drive from, from Canada to Detroit down to Cleveland was a giant, uh, the Whiskey Highway, they called it. Uh, Seattle, Washington was, a, I mean, a stone's throw um, from the Canadian border. We got a lot of our booths from the Canadians, um, and it was just so easy to get in. So 
the job for them to enforce it was way too large. Um, and the money, the incentive for the people who were flaunting the law was too, too large for them to stop. Now, everything I know about Prohibition has come from Boardwalk Empire. Great show. My, <laughs> wife, my wife and I just started watching it like two weeks ago. All right, all right, all right. Uh, well, I don't want to spoil it for you, but I am. They get to a point where they start getting um, rum from Cuba. Is that part of of the whiskey highway? Sure, the, or the, the rum those highway. Are the rum runners. Mm-hmm. Um, suddenly, there's a lot more. Um, there's a lot more people traveling to Florida. Um, Florida has a huge population boom. Cities like Jacksonville, Miami, in the 1920s. Um, a lot of that was simply going to places like Cuba. Bimini was another place. Uh, all those places, the Bahamas. I mean, the English, those English, uh, you know, British islands down there, they didn't have prohibition. So the British are also bringing in tons of boots because now they're making money, uh, you know, across the pond as well. So where were they making it? I mean, all these places that manufactured the booze prior to, I imagine those places got shut down. A lot of the larger uh, places stayed open. Um, and still made the booze. They still made the booze for, again, those medicinal, medicinal purposes. Those medicinal purposes we talked about, which were suddenly, they weren't meeting the same demand as before, um, but they were meeting a lot of, of, you know, still a very large demand nationally through the, through the uh, pharmacists. Um, a lot of them were made in, in, at the home. A lot of them were made, and even in Boardwalk Empire, you see yeah. that there's a guy at the funeral home who's, who's got a whole shop. Everyone had their own little shop. The, the problem was, and the Anti-Saloon League really uses, loses a lot of its uh, clout in the mid-20s, is people are using any alcohol they can find. Right. Wood alcohol. Grant, the stuff you'd rub on your deck right now. Uh, you know, Thompson's water seal. I don't know if it has Stuff alcohol. that could kill you. And it did. And it ki- did. It really did. And so the Anti-Saloon League decides, Wayne Wheeler decides, really not even the Saloon League, really uh, Wheeler. Who's Wayne Wheeler? Wayne Wheeler's the head of the Anti-Saloon League. He is okay. like the ultimate buzzkill in American history. So <laughs> he is. And he's my episode on, you know, Ohio v. the World um, is, is focuses a lot on Wayne Wheeler. Wheeler. Yeah, he goes to, he goes to Oberlin College, um, which is where the Anti-Saloon League started in 1893. Goes to law school at, it was called Western Reserve in Cleveland. And then he moves down to Columbus and starts basically running the Anti-Saloon League office in Columbus. And he shuttles between Columbus and Washington. Um, and in 1905, he really puts his name on the map. He, he starts a crusade to oust our governor. We had a very popular governor named uh, Myron Herrick. In um, the 1905 gubernatorial election in Ohio is a huge moment in the Prohibition movement because Wheeler and the Anti-Saloon League are able to basically get one of their board members, a Democrat, to beat a very popular governor who was very pro, um, pro he, was, he was a wet, as they would call him back then. It shows Wheeler that we can do this other places. Um, and they get so much money in from the churches, they actually start, you know, giant lists of addresses and people and volunteers. Um, and it's a real grassroots, you know, grassroots movement by Wayne Wheeler. But Wheeler also comes up with the idea during Prohibition to start poisoning this denatured alcohol, as they call it, the wood alcohol, the stuff that people are using. Um, and a ton of people die. Uh, it's actually a New Year's Eve in New York in 1926. Uh, dozens of people are killed. And Wheeler has, you know, he says those people died of suicide. Um, and so really, he killed them. He basically, he basically, he basically them. talked these chemical companies into putting something in the chemicals that would kill people if they drank it. And then they tried to get the word out that if you drink this stuff, you'll die. But people, it's New Year's Eve in New York. In New York, you need a drink. You don't know what you're drinking back then. That's what was so dangerous about it. Um, 
And a lot of people did die, and a lot of that, I believe, is, is Wayne Wheeler's fault. Oh, man, it sounds like it. The ultimate buzzkill. The ultimate Wayne, buzzkill. Wayne B. Wheeler. But that's where we got our bathtub gins and, and so forth. And, exactly. And bathtub so gin is a big deal. Um, you know, if you live in a smaller town, you can make a lot more money, you know, than plowing the field if you start making gin and whiskey and, and giving it to your, your residents. Which is what the Templeton rye was. That was the farmers in Carroll County in who Iowa. were looking to supplement their income in Iowa. Yeah. Uh, like I said, now it's distilled in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Which, by the way, you know, we do talk about the uh, the whiskey that we're drinking. Do you do you like the Templeton? I, this is what I recommend to people who say, "Oh, I hate rye." I go drink the Templeton rye. It's 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 a good it's a good starter good starter, starter rye. rye. Yeah, <laughs> it's not my favorite by any stretch of the imagination. I like it. I like it a lot. It says the good stuff on it. It, um, it says the good stuff, but like I said, it's now it's the it's the pretty good stuff. I've listened it's, to a lot of your pocket. I've never heard you sandbag one of your whiskeys as hard as you're oh, hitting on the uh, Templeton. Uh, I'm not sandbagging it. I'm <laughs> saying I'm saying that it's not what it once was. As a matter of fact, they speaking you being the the liquor lawyer. Is that what I write? Liquor lawyer? Liquor lawyer, <laughs> liquor lawyer yeah. yeah. Liquor attorney, whatever the case. Liquor lawyers, it's, might it's be. They smooth. were actually sued um, because and, and had to take off the pro uh, prohibition era recipe because they started using, um, like I said, had to start using all these different blends to, to make the flavorings. So they had to, they got sued. And actually, if you, if you took the time to do it, you could actually get a refund, not on the whole bottle, but... It used to retail for about thirty-five bucks a bottle. Now it's twenty-nine bucks a bottle. You could actually get your three to six dollars back. Just waiting on that six-dollar whiskey <laughs> yeah, refund if, to come in the mail. If you wanted to take those steps, yeah. but I, you know, I like it. It's it's you know, it's it's if it's a good rye whiskey to give to people who don't normally like to drink rye because eh, there's a lot of other stuff in there. I for, like it. And for it's being a, a prohibition a, a bathtub whiskey. It's actually pretty tasty. You know, oh, I yeah. think of a it's bathtub gin being see, you, rough. You know, they're not stupid. They're, yeah. They're, they're, it's got a bunch of other things in there. So uh, for someone who's not, you know, familiar or acquainted with a good rye whiskey, this yeah. would be good to you. So, yeah, yeah. they're going no, basically good. they're going for the popular dollar and the popular consumption as opposed to the. To the exclusive one, so but hey, it's it's good and it and it made sense to have this one tonight because it was Al Capone's favorite and nobody made more money in Prohibition than Al Capone. Well, and I, I, you know, Capone was was a bad man, but I love that just that speakeasy culture mm-hmm. uh, of the 1920s. I just think it was so fascinating. You know, one of the the big changes you see is before 1920, the the saloon, the bar that was that was a man's refuge from the home. Okay, and. I know you're a man's man. I'm a man's man. So one of the problems with with prohibition for a lot of men was that women start coming into the bar. So men are saying women caused prohibition. Now they get the right to vote. And now they're also it was just a different time that the the equality was changing. But men and women start drinking together in the 1920s a lot more than they ever had. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why it, it was, you know, a very sexual time in our country's history is also you know, a period of time called the Roaring Twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that had to do with all of a sudden there's women at your bar, you know, um, which is a big change. I mean, we take that for granted that there's now, that now there's women, do, yeah. but back in the day, that's where you went to get away from the women. Um, you know, there's a great <laughs> saying. Um, there's a great saying of a man who sums up the history of this during the Prohibition time. He sums up the history of America in one sentence, and he says: Columbus, Washington, Lincoln, Volstead. 
two flights up and ask for Gus. That's <laughs> according to you know, some. I think it was from the New York or something. But that was his history of America. Volstead being the the senator that the Prohibition Act was named for. So Columbus, Washington, Lincoln, Volstead, two flights up and ask for Gus. So so obviously. Before Prohibition goes into uh, legal effect, there's a big party, right? Huge party. Huge there's party. a great the first episode of Boardwalk Empire. That's actually the, the first scene. Uh, what about when when it's repealed? Well, when it's repealed, the the you know I, I watched a bunch of uh, when I was putting together my Prohibition podcast. I watched a lot of old news reels from, yeah. from 1933. Was it as big of a party, or it was were people a, like just like it eh. was a huge party? And and to be honest with you, some places as soon as the law was repealed, there's still you know a period of time the law will go into effect in two months. People didn't wait for those two months. I mean the the bottle was off. They say in all these newscasts, and they use that old timey you know the bottle is off. The, the, the bottle is off. Yeah, they use that old news time yeah. news reel voice. You know, eat eat smacky small. <laughs> the bottle's off. 1933. The bottle's off. Yeah. And so that was a huge time for people to, um, you know, just drinking a beer like that was just such a, a liberating event for people. You know, it reminds me, in, in Westerville in 1933, after Prohibition, the dry capital of the world, <laughs> there was a pool hall that opened that was selling 3-2 beer. Um, and, I remember 3-2 beer. Oh, yeah. So Westerville uh, yeah. has one place. And it's a dry capital. It was a huge story. A bunch of news people come in and, and a bunch of people take a bus from German Village to Westerville. Um, they make the 15-mile trip, and they go into this bar in Westerville, Ohio, the dry capital of the world, and they drink 3-2 beer. And it was a national story that, you know, even the dry capital, Westerville, Ohio, has fallen, the home of the anti-saloon league. Ah, that's you know, awesome. Tourism drinking in, in, in <laughs> Westerville. Um, but that was just, that was a fun time. People needed alcohol then. I mean, that's, that is the depths of the Depression there in 32 and 33. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did help bring back uh, a little bit of business, and it did help the country. You know, I kind of look at it nowadays. We we had this really terrible economic time in you know two thousand seven, eight, nine, um, and that's also when you start to see a lot of people talking about the legalization of marijuana. Right. That's, you know, and it, there are some parallels there from nineteen twenty to two thousand and eight. Yeah, but what's interesting, you talk about those bad economic times. The one thing that really didn't suffer was that people were drinking. Oh no, you could still get a drink. People were still drinking, and a lot of people were were there. There wasn't maybe as much consumption in the bars per se, but there was a lot the liquor sales. As I recall, stayed steady. Maybe went up as people were buying a bottle and bringing it home. You're absolutely right. Um, home home drinking did go up in the in the late 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talked about the the lady who bought an entire liquor store. FDR, the guy who passed it, he bought enough wine and liquor in 1920 that he thought would last him a decade. He thought the law would take a decade to to repeal, um, and he actually does run out. He runs out in the late you know mid to late 1920s. What he do? Well, he ended up uh, <laughs> he ended up getting polio around that time, and I think he just drank a lot out of depression. I'm but, saying, yeah. but what did he do when he ran out? Uh, he just I'm sure he was a rich man. He was in New York. He, he could was get able anything. to. He could he could resupply, and he also you know obviously. Hi, I'm the president. Yeah, um, well, he runs know, in 32 yeah. on you know uh, I'm going to repeal prohibition. I mean, think mm-hmm. of, think if you had a candidate now, Dino, oh, really? who said to Dino, Dino, if you vote for the other guy, we'll still prohibit alcohol, but if you vote for me, I'll repeal it. You would be you'd be a knocking door to door for for FDR, <laughs> I think. Let me ask you a, a, a question. This it is nineteen twenty, and uh, you're an attorney in nineteen twenty. You're Alex Hasty, attorney at law, nineteen twenty. Yeah. Prohibition is going into uh, effect. What side are you on? Are you are, are you are you going to end up being uh, straight as an arrow and follow the law, or are you? Uh, 
Are you going on the other side? I'd like to say that, you know, I would spend, I'm a liquor attorney. I'm also a criminal attorney. Um, I would do a lot of, I think, representing people who, uh, who were caught selling, who were caught violating the Volstead Act. Um, but you bring up, you know, a great point. George Remus, who becomes uh, one of the biggest, you know, bootleggers in the country's history in Cincinnati, he was an attorney. He was a criminal attorney in Chicago, and he starts seeing these clients, these criminal, you know, numbskull clients of his getting in trouble for, for you know, bootlegging and ripping off $100,000 bills to pay his, his legal fees. And he starts thinking, you know, if these idiots can do yeah. it, then maybe I should look into this. And what he does, he's an attorney who basically moves to Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati was, a, was a, not so much a larger city, but a very important city back then. Um, it was close to close enough to New York, close enough to Chicago. It's right on the river. We did a lot more shipping, you know, via the rivers back in 1920. He moves to Cincinnati because it's basically 300 miles from all the bonded warehouses where all the liquor that we talked mm-hmm. about is still stored. Um, and what he does is he starts buying up pharmacies. Remus decides that I'm going to just run the whole thing. I'm going to buy up the warehouse. Then I'm going to buy up the pharmacy. Then I'm going to jack a bunch of my own trucks. Up, oh, that whiskey went away. That whiskey is now being put out on the market. So he starts working with the pharmacists and the criminal element um, in, in centrals, you know, puts it all in Cincinnati, Ohio, a place called Death Valley was the name of his property. Um, and Remus is a fascinating guy. We're doing a podcast on him for our, our second season where we focus a little more on the actual prohibition era. But George Remus answers that question. He's an attorney who uses his knowledge of the law to become probably the biggest bootlegger in, in the eastern United States. So don't you, you know, uh, would you have been tempted back in the 20s to follow that path? I would have. Remus meets, <laughs> uh, Remus meets a little bit of a difficult end. Um, yeah. He, he basically gets busted. Uh, the government puts him uh, behind bars, and his wife runs off. Uh, his wife runs off actually with the prohibition agent who put him away. Um, and so Remus finds out about this in jail, um, there's a divorce proceeding when he gets out of jail and Remus actually shoots and kills his wife in a taxi. He sees him. He has his taxi driver chase her down. He shoots and kills her, um, and, and, and goes to trial for murder. Um, and Remus actually becomes one of the most famous cases of, of, uh, innocent by, you know, by insanity. By Tem- reason of insanity. Cause he, he went nuts. Up, he, he, went he nuts. did as a lawyer, he did a temporary insanity murder case that he lost before prohibition, but he uses it in the country almost, uh, the country kind of you guys like Al Capone. People actually liked these guys. You know, they were they were they were they were, stars. They were folk heroes. And, and Remus is the same way. You know, they, they see you know these people providing you a service that you need. They don't see the lawbreaker unless you know someone from Capone's gang killed one of your family members in Chicago. You probably liked Al Capone, and you probably liked George Remus. The country is rooting for Remus to win that murder trial, and when he does, there's a huge eruption of cheers. And in the he court. won. He won. He was he was found innocent by. By uh, reason of insanity. Wow. Um, and that goes to, I mean, he had a good lawyer. Um, <laughs> but he also, it, it shows you just those people were popular figures in, in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, they were there. Like I said, they were they were folk heroes. They were icons in, in a sense. And, and the reason is, you know, there's a word scoff law that's invented uh, during the Prohibition era. It's actually, I think, a Boston paper. They, they sent out. You know, kind of like I remember we tried to name the hockey team here in Columbus. The dispatch sent out a big poll. Mm-hmm, the Boston paper sends out a poll in the early prohibition times to try and come up with a word for someone who defies the prohibition law. And of all the submissions, the word scoff law was the one that they chose. That word kind of stuck, but it was a 
a country of scofflaws. I mean, the average citizen was breaking the law almost every single day. They're going out of their way to break the law. And when you suddenly you have a country of law-abiding citizens or people who think they're law-abiding citizens, and, and now everyone's become a scofflaw. Everyone is in some ways a criminal element in their own life. And that's also helps you know for them to root against the police, against the government, um, and root for guys like Remus and Capone um, and the other you know bootleggers, Joseph Kennedy and those guys. Mm. Do you come a, Do you come from a family of law? Uh, my parents were both lawyers, um, but that was about it. I mean, I've got a couple aunts and uncles. My brother, who I practice with, uh, Ed Hasty at Ed Hasty Legal. Um, He's a, he's a lawyer, so I guess I have a lot of cousins who are lawyers. I I went into law as a history major, in case you couldn't tell. Yeah, no, that, that, that I think it's awesome. It's great. It's uh, fascinating. But, but I was you know coming out of college, and I was you know you can't really go into the history business, so I had to figure out you know something else to do, and mm-hmm. so I just I basically went into law school not even knowing what it was or anything, just as kind of like the next thing to do. Um, and I enjoy it. You know, it's fun to to do our practice is a little more fun than doing you know tax law or or a state law to represent these bar owners. and So that is is that exclusively your practice? We do a lot of drunk driving defense. I know you had my friend John Say on, yeah, on one of your first yeah. episodes. John's a, an excellent attorney. Um, we do a lot of the drunk driving defense here in the state of Ohio. Um, but a large part of our practice is also this liquor law stuff, and we help people get their, their bar and restaurant off the ground, their gas station, just help people you know start their own business. And they're more fun clients, I think, than... Than the person you're writing a, a and, will for, and you like to imbibe in what you you work with, right? I do. I mean, I need to visit my clients at their establishments on occasion. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. I what do. do you? Which uh, so you know, this is whiskey business. What's your favorite whiskey? I am. Uh, I you know, I drink a lot of. Uh, I actually drink a lot of just bullet bourbon. I'm kind of uh, a, a dumb mm. animal like that. Um, <laughs> But mostly what I drink when it comes to good whiskey is someone else who's giving it to me. So <laughs> I'm not going to sit here. Just like, you know. I've I'm, been invited. I've told you to come to my house how many times. Well, maybe we'll go after to this. To go but- on your own little bourbon trail in my home. It's right there. You don't have to go to Kentucky. You can go right there. I'm the uh, same way with wine. I mean, I like I like alcohol. I enjoy drinking. I like the social aspects of it. But I don't sit there and drink, you know, a wine and know, oh, that's a very, you know, oaky finish and that kind of stuff. I just... I'm more of a consumer than a. Uh, As am I, because you know, if I was that way, you know, I would say, oh no, no, we can't drink that because that's a bourbon from so and such a year. And you're uh, ruining, uh, you're ruining drinking when you do stuff like yeah, that. No, yeah, no, all my bottles are open. <laughs> you know, you got Pappy Van Winkle. Yeah, you want some? Here you go. Sure, I you like, know, it. I like um, a good Pappy Van Winkle. We're gonna drink it. You know, we're we're gonna drink everything that's in my house. You could put a little in my glass. There I can put to. a little in your glass. <laughs> so let's flash forward now. Um, uh, it's 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 2017. You know, who knows what's going to be happening in our country come the next 10 years. But let's say it gets a little crazy. Let's say it goes a little nutso. Let's say something like prohibition or exactly like prohibition happens in our lifetime. What side are you on then? I'm going to be on the side of the people who pay me, which will probably <laughs> will not be the government. So I will be on the side of the scoff laws. And, and the something. scoff laws? Now, what are we banning? Are we banning, uh, we're banning we're, internet we're, porn? Are no, we banning sports scandals? We're, we should... we're, you know, we're... Marijuana is legal in all the states, but all of a sudden, booze goes away. <laughs> I mean, just just imagine that for a second. So I think now, the, the country would be too lazy, I think, to do anything about it. Do anything point. about it. Marijuana becomes legal, but booze gets outlawed. That'd be a sad day again. Uh, it's 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 something that I it, can tell you right now will never happen again I, when it comes to alcohol. No, you don't, 
no, there's no possible way it could happen. But if it did, what side would you be on, Alex Hasty? I'm on the side of of the uh, of the scoff law mm-hmm. on the Ameri- The I'm an American. Um, look, this country is built on personal responsibility. This country is built on personal liberty, and there's no law that I think constricted that more than the 18th Amendment. Um, and you look at just how the law failed um, and how it gave rise to just terrible violence um, across the country that, you know, it, that really the country took a long time to ever recover from. Um, the law didn't work, and I would be on the side of, of common sense, you know, legislation to not ban alcohol. That's my politician answer for you. It's a great answer. Thank you, thank you. Are you ever going to run for office? Uh, I. <laughs> some people ask me. I don't have a great name for it. I don't think Hasty is a is a great name for for uh, for a billboard. But I could do a lot better job than most of these dopes. For sure. uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I I've known you for quite a few years now, and I would tend to agree. <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I do. Uh, I am active politically. I do a lot of work. Uh, I manage a lot of campaigns for judicial candidates here in Franklin County. So if it's so someone the, that I believe you're, you're, you're in. You're the man you, behind the man? I'm the man behind the man. The man just off, off the uh, the camera frame there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I get in politis- uh, politics myself, probably not, especially not after doing a podcast like this. <laughs> no, 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 no. This would actually probably work in your favor. This will be my Billy Bush, you know, locker <laughs> locker room <laughs> no, talk moment. No, no, no. Uh-oh. Trust me. <laughs> We've done enough of these. Grab them you, by the you, tripodis. You're, you're nowhere close. <laughs> you're nowhere close to a Billy Bush I don't Bush think we moment. have had one F word in the entire show. Well, no, no, I'm we, sorry we, about we, that. We yeah. not dropped an F I run, yet. you know, my, my podcast, The High V The World, I try to not have any profanity, so. Maybe when I'm in front of the microphone, I'm trained to not say. Maybe I'll, I'll throw, a, I'll throw a damn in there every once in a while. It's, it's okay. I mean, we don't encourage the F-bomb, but sometimes <laughs> my, my previous guests have, have felt very comfortable. And like I said, we do drink the whiskey on Whiskey Business. <laughs> I'm sure, and, yeah, and, later in the episode and, is probably and, when you start and, to and see it. And, and, and tongues get loose, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, this has been... This is what I like. This is what I like about whiskey business. All right, you learned a little bit about Templeton's. You can make your own choices now. It doesn't it's suck. Good. It's good. It's, it's good. good. Greg likes it. Greg, how old are you? Thirty-two. Okay, that's why he likes it. I like it. You like I'm it. I'm thirty-five. You're not thirty-five. I'm thirty-five. Are you thirty-five? Yeah. Man. You're an old soul then, because I thought you were a little older. I'm. I'm. Thank you. I guess. <laughs> well, it's. It's a. I love your show. I mean, it's great to. Uh, you know, I just like talking talking history with people, and so that's kind of why I'm bringing my podcast, which launches next week. Yeah, when does that launch? Uh, March twenty fifth. So we got the first five episodes. Ohio done. versus the world. Ohio v the world is actually the title, but we call it versus um, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio. It's it's on all of those. So we're going to look at a person from Ohio or an event in Ohio, basically a time that Ohio took on the world. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. Um, but it's usually, you know, Ohio versus something. So whether it's my episode on prohibition, which is Ohio versus booze, that basically talks about why prohibition is completely Ohio's fault and why we should be, yeah, uh, why I, we should be upset with ourselves. I did learn that tonight. <laughs> I'm living in the blame state. Yeah, it's really central Ohio's <laughs> fault. <isn't it? laughs> All right. So is there any, any anything else you want to give us before we go that we didn't cover that we missed that I might not have uh, been smart enough to ask? No, I mean we're Italian, so we didn't discuss our, our you know mutual uh, Italian heritage, which is how we met mm-hmm. um, at the Columbus Italian Club. At the Columbus Italian Club, I'm the secretary of that fine organization. Yes, I'm sitting are. here with the former president. Yeah, former president. Um, yeah, yeah. But yep. really, it was 
one thing I never liked about studying prohibition was just how xenophobic it was and how anti-immigrant and anti, I mean, it's certainly anti-German, which has a lot to do with the war and a lot to do with beer culture, but it was also very anti-Italian. Well, look who the, the biggest, as they were called, mobsters were of the day, Capone, Luciano, uh, just to name two. Yeah, most most of the good ones were Italians. Yeah, um, but it was, <laughs> but the law gets passed really because people are they don't they don't like immigrants. It's very it's very similar time to to our time now. Um, but Italians come to this country in overwhelming numbers at the turn of the century, and wine is a part of their daily existence. Right, and one of the reasons they want to take away liquor these these uh, these religious forces and these political forces. It's really a response, a xenophobia, an anti-German, an anti-Central European uh, mindset that really strikes the country, having a lot to do with the war, but also a lot to do with immigrants coming in again and taking, you know, they took our jobs, as they say. Wow. Um, and and it's, uh, that's, so that plays that, a big role that, in it, uh, this idea that, you know. Well, isn't that scary that it played such a big role then and then and it's kind of the same stuff we're dealing with now? It's Yeah, there hasn't been an, a lot of growth in this country over the last hundred years. Um, but it, it is, it's just a cautionary tale that when we let our anti-immigrant feelings get in the way of, of making this country great again, um, you know, that I, I hate to use that line, but I, I think that prohibition gives us a lot of insights into what's going on now, um, in kind of government intervention and, and how that's never going to be a solution. Um, whether it's deporting, you know, millions of immigrants like our president wants to do now, or whether it's, you know, signing up thousands of prohibition agents to, to storm the country and, and crack open liquor bottles. Hmm. Um, this is a country that solves its problems through its people um, and not through its, through its you know, federal government. I vote for Alex Hasty, everybody. Here, here. Uh, let's do it while we still can. A Cheers. sensible Republican. <laughs> Cheers. All right. That wraps it up for this edition of Whiskey Business. I got a couple of things to say. Whiskey Business is uh, a Never the Luck production recorded in cooperation with the Columbus Radio Group. All the opinions that you hear this evening are those of your host and my reluctant guests and are never meant to offend, only to entertain, and in this case, inform. I also want to thank my producer, Greg Hansberry, as always. And so, my friends, until the next bottle, see ya. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work, and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com and listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.